Today, I have the privilege of thanking some more helpful homies who have made a monthly pledge to help keep the show going. So thank you with all my heart to Emma Galloway, Catherine Fierhuis and Dave and Jasmine Tran for your monthly donation. You're awesome. And if you're listening and would also like to support the show, visit patreon.podbean.com forward slash homeopathy hangout or check the show notes. Thanks. Today we speak with Dr. Rukshin Master, who is not only the daughter of world-renowned homeopath Dr. Farooq Master, but she is a well-established and accomplished homeopath in her very own right. She specializes in pediatrics and received her doctoral degree in homeopathic medicine from the reputed CMP Homeopathic Medical College that offers a six-year training in conventional and alternative medicine. She also earned her master's degree in pediatrics and homeopathy, whereby she specialized in allergic respiratory diseases. Even though her primary practice is children, she sees patients of all ages and with all health concerns, supporting them expertly with her gentle, compassionate and holistic approach to medicine. Her PhD thesis was based on a clinical study on children with autism spectrum disorder, and she passionately utilizes the therapeutics of homeopathy to help these children. She has special interest in the treatment of allergic disorders like asthma and eczema, digestive orders, and autoimmune conditions. She also uses the tools of homeopathy to support those with mental health concerns, especially anxiety and depression, to untwine them from the web of drug dependence. I know you're going to love this episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Homeopathy Hangout, where we discuss all things homeopathy from around the world. And now my mum and your host, Eugenie Kruger. Hello, homies, and a very warm welcome to Homeopathy Hangout. Today, we are speaking with inspirational homeopath, Dr. Rukshin Master, currently located in Singapore. Welcome, Rukshin. Hi, Eugenie. So nice to be on your podcast. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. Now, you are in good company with two other guests we've had on the show, Luke Norland and Leia Golden, in that you are the daughter of a very well-known homeopath, world famous, I would say, <laughs> and now creating your own path and doing incredible work. Can you tell us a little bit, Rukshin, what was it like for you growing up with homeopathy in your DNA? Uh, so to look back at it now, I think it was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, for me, there was no other way or no other treatment I knew as a child other than homeopathy. Um, I was absolutely clueless of, of names other than, you know, paracetamol as a child, which also I heard from friends. <laughs> and so for me, the concept of injections, uh, you know, getting going to the doctor for regular checkups, all of that just never existed because it was always just with your own father. Uh, treatments were always uh, homeopathic treatments based on whatever uh, acute uh, situation I had. So I went through a lot as a child. I had the smallpox, I had the measles, I had the uh, mumps. I uh, went through a lot of fevers that lasted for very long. And all of that, we always, always only relied on homeopathy. And that gives me so much confidence now as an adult, because when I have to treat my own child, I know that it's possible to completely get through most of it using only an 100% homeopathy. Amazing. And I love your blog on your website. You write there how you were four years old and then going into hospital with your dad and sitting on the beds and watching what he was doing. I can just imagine what that must have been like. 
Yeah, so I was um, I was very small. I remember me and my uh, little sister. We were a very small nuclear family. We didn't have uh, grandparents, and so uh, it was just my mom and dad. And so whenever mom had to go out for some work, she would normally drop us off at the clinic, <laughs> and we would be sitting there on the examination beds uh, because there would be so much of rush and so many clients that there would be literally no other space for us to really uh, base camp. And so you'd be sitting there and uh, observing my dad, observing what he's doing. And it would be so interesting and so fun. And uh, I think I always took to it as a second home. Like for me, when I go to a clinic, when I go to a hospital now, it's such a comfort zone for some weird reason that that I'm perfectly fine over there. Whereas my husband, he always has the eeks, you know, entering a, a medical establishment. It kind of gives him the jitters. And I'm like, oh, it's fine, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, this is my safe space. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And of course, things in India are so different because uh, the HHC clinic, which I think you still work at, but online with your dad. And you were saying that they can do one practitioner can do up to 50 acutes a day and like eight or 10 chronic cases. And, you know, my mind boggles. How is that even possible? How is there enough hours in the day, like in the week, let alone the day to see that many people? So again, you would be even more shocked to know that there are practitioners doing double or triple of those numbers. <gasps> so we practice constitutional Hanumanian homeopathy. So we do the whole one hour case history or even with an acute, it's at least a good 10, 15 minutes. Now, because we have so much staff, how it works is that, you know, staff would probably do the preliminary case taking and then, you know, it just goes on to a senior practitioner for the prescriptions. But there are doctors who do those five-minute prescriptions also, and they see more than 300 patients a day in uh, India sometimes. And it is marvelous because the results are still marvelous. So it baffles me as to how the different kinds of homeopathy also produce such amazing results. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we have had lots of different types of homeopaths uh, on. And interestingly today, I'm also going to be interviewing Anna Vivark, who does more like, you know, the vital homeopathy is more sort of intuitive. And just before her, Jan Shelton, who obviously does the minerals. And, you know, everyone's getting amazing results, but they all come from such a different angle. Um, now, you have a special interest in pediatrics and pregnancy. So tell me a little bit about that. When did you start becoming interested in that? And what do you enjoy about that side of homeopathy? So I feel like with me, my maternal instincts have always been the strongest from being a mother to my younger sister, trying to, you know, get into that aspect as much as possible. Babies always drew me towards them. And so I always decided that I want to do something with that space. So when it came the opportunity to actually do my master's in pediatrics with homeopathy, I mean, I just didn't want to do anything else. I knew that that was it for me. And this is where my interest lies. And I'm so happy I did it. I, I enjoy working with children. Sometimes it's not the easiest. Like two days back, I had a child who came into clinic and I think we probably did 15 minutes of actual talking and the rest one and a half hour we just spent in trying to calm the child down mm. so he was so restless and hyper running around he bit me at one point <gasps> there were things th being thrown around at some point it was absolutely chaotic but I still enjoy it so much because I feel like that's that's something where I want to contribute my uh, my knowledge to I want to try to help these children I want to try to work as much as I can with them because uh, I feel like a child that's kind of set straight in the beginning and, you know, kind of is enveloped with natural remedies in their childhood phase really grows up to blossom as a much healthier adult as compared to a lot of cases that I see who come after going from practitioner to practitioner, having heaps of files. Even in the clinic back in India, we used to see 
children, for example, with asthma, they used to come with such thick files, mm -hmm. prescription after prescription, they're on bronchodilators, they're on steroid inhalers, sometimes oral steroids, and the child is still not better. Everyone's miserable because the child being sick affects the entire family. So I feel like when you know that homeopathy can really show you such astounding and surprising results, I mean, why not? You know, you really want to prove that to everyone using that. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, I like how you're saying the kid was running around the rest of the time and then bit you. Any other practitioner of any other modality would be you know, really angry at that. But for homeopaths, we'd actually be glad because we're like, great, that's a wonderful symptom. I know exactly what remedy to give this child because he bit me in the consult. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly and observation is so important right mm. and, and the time that you spend with your clients I feel like now practitioners are not giving that kind of time which which clients really need with especially in modern medicine uh, specialties and so I feel with us as homeopaths we know that time is everything you know we want to observe as much as we can learn as much as we can when we're seeing the client so yeah so when I came home there was another practitioner who was uh, who had come home that evening and she was like oh my god I could not have done that and I was like yeah but I enjoyed it <laughs> I was so happy to to have him there and it was just a joy yeah um you have a beautiful saying on your website it is easier to build up a child than to repair an adult and I couldn't agree with you more and with that in mind how do you feel we can use homeopathy to really ensure that we raise strong healthy children okay so um I think it all starts all the way from pregnancy from the time a mother really conceives the child as to what determines the health of the child. And now we have enough clinical and research evidence to be able to show us how important that actually is. Everything that a mother eats from the time that she's pregnant, her, her mineral levels, her supplement levels, her exercise levels, uh, the overall health status of the mother and the father as well, because mm -hmm. that definitely affects the, the genetic uh, structure of the child. And so all of that falls into consideration when first determining how healthy that child is going to be. Through pregnancy, of course, luckily, I mean, I, I always say luckily that uh, mothers can't really take a lot of Western medicines because mm. uh, most of them are prohibited. And, and, and I'm really glad for that because that gives us an even better opportunity because then they actually seek out homeopaths at that point of time. And uh, it's a good opportunity to actually educate them as to why it's so important then to use these natural remedies as much as they can through pregnancy, through labor, delivery, postpartum, and then even for their infant uh, mm -hmm. care symptoms. So um, I think education is the key for that. I really love talking to mothers about why that's so important, why the immune system forms the very crux of everything. Um, so there have been a lot of, uh, I mean, COVID's actually brought out a lot of the whole immune system uh, importance into everyone's eyes. And so I really like to always discuss about the difference between germ theory and terrain theory. Germ theory is something which, which everyone really has put their faith in, thinking that, you know, it's the germs, it's the pathogens, it's all of that that's making us sick. But in fact, it's our terrain that determines how healthy or sick we are going to be. And so when I say terrain, it's it's something like the immune system, which is going on inside the healthy microbiome that you're building, the, the your healthy gut, the immune system, all of that somewhere works together to determine how healthy or sick you're going to be. And so we need to make sure that whatever we do, we're trying to make that as healthy as possible, whether it be through a good lifestyle, through a good diet, through trying and taking as few toxins and drugs into our system, trying to only inculcate good natural habits, trying to figure out the best and the most harmonious way with nature to try to heal your body. 
And I think once we realize that we're one with nature and that's how it's supposed to be and that's how we heal ourselves, that's when, you know, mothers really resonate with all of that and they resonate with, you know, understanding that uh, the concept. Mm. And I think with a lot of people, it's just that they've never been exposed to the thinking of homeopathy. And most people, once they have, especially when they're mothers, because we have that intuition in us, which tells us, I don't want to put anything that can have a side effect in my body that might affect my baby. And, you know, maybe before we're mothers, you know, in our teenage years or early twenties, when, you know, family is probably not as important, we maybe don't care so much about what we put in our bodies. But as soon as we become pregnant, that motherly intuition comes out and it tells us, actually, I don't want to put this thing in my body that might harm my baby and you know that is really where homeopathy shines um rukshin you have a have a beautiful analogy that you use about the farmer and the mosquito and i know that people we all really learn by stories can you tell that story because i think that really illustrates a lot i love to start with that story most of the times because uh, it really helps get our foundation in place mm. so there was once a farmer who who had a land And he noticed that there was a muddy, dirty swamp that was forming in the middle of his farm. And now what was happening is the swamp was attracting a lot of mosquitoes. The mosquitoes were coming to the swamp, destroying the plants and crops nearby. And he was facing a lot of uh, financial losses because of that. And he knew he had to do something about it. So he decided to go to the market, pick up a nice uh, insecticide, pesticide to spray over that entire swamp and kill those mosquitoes. So the problem's gone and... uh, He's good to go the next day. So he sprays it all over and the next day, all the mosquitoes are gone. The following day, however, he notices that the mosquitoes have now come in even larger quantities, all of them becoming even larger in size and more destructive and and forceful in nature. And so now they're destroying even more crops and more farmland than they originally did. This really worries him. He goes back to the market. He picks up an even stronger insecticide and he's like, now I'm going to spray this all over and everything's going to be fine. So he decides to spray that all over his farm and he's really happy with the results because all the mosquitoes die that time and he's very good. He goes back to bed, wakes up the next day in the morning and sees that now the mosquitoes that have come have become even more dangerous. And this goes on for some time till he's absolutely frustrated. The mosquitoes have destroyed the entire farmland and eventually the farmer decides that he now needs to just wash off the land and uh, move on to another place. And so this is a really good analogy, which helps us understand that what could have been a more constructive solution for this farmer to help him preserve his farmland. And the obvious answer that comes across is he just needed to clean up the swamp. That was the only action that was necessary. He just needed to clean up that area, make sure it's pristine, start growing some crops there and everything would have been fine. The mosquitoes wouldn't have been attracted in the first place. The whole nature of our being, and I think it's a lot to do with how we're kind of being educated now, even as doctors, is the whole approach is very treatment oriented, then very, you know, preventative oriented. So our whole our whole base is let's give medicines. Let's give medicines for this. Let's treat that. Let's cut off that. Let's surgically remove this. You know, things like that. Whereas the whole concept should be as to how to clean up that entire area, which we can do by restoring our entire immune system to then reach a point where you don't attract those pathogens anymore. You don't attract the the disease causing agents anymore. And so it really kind of helps you think and helps you realize that, you know, this is, this is the obvious solution to our health. It's interesting because I think Everyone can identify with that story. We've all had weeds in our garden that it's so easy just to get the insecticide out. We've all, we can all relate to that. And then if we hold that image in our mind and we bring it back to our own health, we can suddenly see the similarities there and how 
you know, the long-term effects that has on our health. So I love that story of yours. Now, COVID has been an interesting time for homeopaths because it's brought out all sorts of different things. But one of it is all the fear around infectious disease. People are so scared of getting sick, especially of our children getting sick. So what would you say to a parent who's feeling really anxious and really scared about their child getting an infectious disease of any sort? So I always advise parents that, you know, there's two ways to go about it. Either you you create a little bubble, put your child inside that bubble, and then don't let him do anything. Don't send him to classes and don't let him live his life and don't let don't allow him to enjoy his childhood. Or you strengthen that child to a point where no matter wherever he is exposed, that child is going to stand his ground. And I also explain it to them with giving them an example that for like Indians, local trains are, I feel, a very uh, a very hot spot for infection <laughs> because we're all into each other's faces. We're all breathing down each other's necks. Everyone's sweating and perspiring and fluids are all over each other at <laughs> a lot of points at time. And, and that's how we've grown up. So when I went to homeopathic college, it was about a 45-minute train ride one way and 45 minutes the other way. I would most often than not get a lot of rush. So because it's morning peak hours and evening peak hours. And so you're standing over there squashed in between five people. The only thing that is going to protect you is going to be how strong you are and your immune system is. Tuberculosis, for example, one of the most lethal bacterial infections that exists is is super prevalent in India, but everyone's not getting it. Even though those people are still roaming around, tuberculosis patients in India do not wear masks. So the droplet infections, which is the main source of contamination, is going around everywhere. But at the same time, everyone's not getting it. And the reason why everyone's not getting it is because we all have our own immune system protecting us. And I strongly believe that, that, I mean, you have to be that confident to go into an exposed area with your immune system. And it's and you have to have that kind of faith that it's going to protect you because you know you've been taking care of it with the right things. And so I, I strongly believe in that. And so when a mother says that, you know, my child can't fall sick, my mother done, my child can't go to preschool, for example, is a big hot spot again. So every time a child starts with school, there's going to be, I think, one episode that happens every month. And that happened to my daughter as well. Uh, I wouldn't say it didn't. But we were totally fine. I mean, we would give her the homeopathic medicine. She would wait it out for another two or three days and then she's fine. And then she's back in school again. At least I feel at that point, when you provide the child with this alternative care, you teach the body with every single episode how to produce the necessary cells required so that when you get affected the next time, the body is very well prepared. That's how you build immunity. It's a step-by-step process. You're not born with all the antibodies that you require. With every infection, you build on that. The minute a parent decides that I I don't want my child to build on that. I want my child, you know, the minute the fever comes, I want the paracetamol, I want the fever down. I want the infection out. I want to do the antibiotics. The body is not learning. And so what happens is that the next time the pathogen comes, it's like the mosquito. It's a bigger one. It's a more deadlier one. Then you don't get the regular colds. You know, then you land up with, uh, let's say, a pneumonitis. Or then you land up with, you know, severe conditions which require more severe treatment. So when you let your child's immune system really blossom, I think, by by letting it play it out, let that fever come, you know, let that episode come, let the viral diarrhea happen. No problem. We're perfectly fine with that as long as you know, okay, we need to hydrate. We need to make sure the temperature remains under so-and-so level. We need to make sure that the medicines are going in. There's vitamin C happening, things like that. As long as you know your protocol, I think you're good to go because that's how the child will then blossom into having such a 
lovely immune system that no matter what happens, he can then stand resilient. Mm-hmm. That's pretty incredible too, because uh, I've definitely seen it when my kids have had fevers, they can often have developmental leaps afterwards. So, and you can see pictures online sometimes of a picture a child drew before a fever. And then after the fever is broken, you see them draw again and suddenly, you know, they can draw really beautifully or there's changes in handwriting, like improvements in handwriting. So um, what would you define as a healthy immune system? So do you want your child to be sick all the time and catch everything that's around? Or do you want them to never be sick? Or I feel like these days, everything is so artificial. We don't actually even know what true health is anymore. So what do you feel true health looks like in a child and an adult? But I guess we're talking more about pediatrics today. So what what does a strong child's immune system look like? I think it's important for every child to fall sick. So I don't think a child becomes less healthy when they fall sick. I feel that's perfectly fine. What determines the health in that situation would be their response to the sickness. So for example, a child that catches a viral infection and goes um, into developing a pneumonia, for example, I know that this child is not a very healthy child. But I know a child who develops a viral infection gets a little bit of a mild runny nose, a little bit of cough, fever, lasts it out for about two or three days, and then the child is back to bouncing up and down again. Then we know that this child's immune system is good. This child is a relatively healthier. So I would not really determine it on on the child falling sick, but how they respond when they fall sick. And mothers realize that because they tell me that, you know, my child keeps falling sick and the cough lasts for a month. I have kids who come to me with that as well, saying that, you know, this cough just hasn't gone. Just two days back, I had a child who came to me with an asthmatic cough. They've been on a month of bronchodilators, steroid puffs, and the cough still not gone. So I know that this child really needs a lot of work and a lot of help. Whereas a child that really, you know, brushes it off, you know, is health, is still, let's say, jovial through the entire episode of the fever, is still eating okay. So in homeopathy, we see a lot of the generals. So the appetite's still okay. They're still able to drink. Their energy levels are okay. They're mentally in a good space. You know that this child is, you know, relatively healthier. And not only taking the example of fever, you can actually uh, determine it through a lot of other factors as well, which is a lot of mental growth. I feel like children who are just mentally uh, growing, mentally grasping things a little faster, uh, physically growing well, milestones are happening correctly. All of that kind of, you know, helps us determine how uh, how healthy a child is. Um, I saw something very disturbing the other day and I don't have the source for it at the moment, but it's some, you know, how there's different organizations that determine milestones for children. But in this one particular organization has now taken crawling completely away as a milestone, which really worries me. It shows you the state of our children because there is so much damage done on a neurological, you know, mental, emotional, physical level that a lot of kids these days are not crawling and people do not realize what an incredibly important milestone that is because it connects that left, right brain. And because the health of our children is so chronically sick these days and, you know, so shocking that kids are not crawling. And now this is considered the new normal. So crawling is just completely taken off as a milestone. That's just so mainstream way of thinking, you know, uh, okay, kids are not crawling anymore. Okay. Instead of finding out why are they not crawling anymore? Let's just remove that from the milestones. Exactly. No, I I get that. I mean, I feel like the children that our parents had, the children that we had, and now the kids that our kids will have, they're all going to be tremendously different. We see that with with a lot of uh, a lot of the way the milestones develop as well, of mm-hmm. course, but a lot of health factors as well, right? For example, when you look back about just fifty years, and you see children actually developing uh, severe chronic diseases, 
was so much lower. Mm-hmm. We're almost at about a 300% increase in just one generation. So childhood obesity, childhood diabetes, all of that is just increasing and exploding. And instead of really identifying what's happening, we're still focused on trying to prevent diseases which do absolutely no harm to you. So they're still trying to, you know, put the fight up against measles and put the fight up against, you know, your colds. And Chicken pox. Like that. Exactly. <laughs> when, when you know that all of that provides you a good lifelong immunity, prevents you from getting various diseases in adulthood. And all of these are proven facts. And we're still fighting against that. We're not really trying to find out what is causing our children to be so gravely sick, where they're already dependent on medications from such a young age. I actually saw something interesting on your website. I think it said something along the lines of more people are dying of infectious diseases now than in the 1970s or something along those lines. I think it was a study that you quoted, which I found thought was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Rukshin, can you share some cases from your clinic with us? I know that's one of the things our listeners always, when they email me, they always say they enjoy hearing about the cases. Of course. I would love to share some cases. Um, So uh, since we're talking a little bit more on the allergy front, I would just like to discuss a few cases on those lines. So Singapore, unfortunately, sees unexpected number of eczema cases. So the atopic dermatitis cases that we see out here. So the statistics say that almost one in every five children in Singapore has eczema at this point of time. Statistics then go on to say that almost 50% of those cases will go on to have lifelong eczema. So you can imagine how severe the condition is here. Unfortunately, everyone rushes to the skin centers, everyone rushes to the dermatologist. The first and only thing that they want to start the child on is steroids because they know that that's the only thing that's really going to kind of, you know, put it down the quickest. And so most of these children are all dependent on steroids when they come to you. The minute you take away the steroids for about three, four, five days, things start coming back up again. And so they know that that's the only way to kind of treat it. It becomes very, very difficult to treat these cases, even with homeopathy, because the body is then so dependent on these medications that it takes very, very long. Mm -hmm. And so I, again, love to treat children for the only reason that they're very nascent, you know, they're not being exposed to as much as adults have. So it's easier to get them to even respond to a lot of uh, homeopathy. And so luckily, this child that came to me was only six months old. Both the parents are very holistic minded. They're uh, Malaysian uh, origin parents, and uh, they knew that they did not want to expose their child to that. The child had eczema from head to toe. So this was their seventh child. (gasps) Oh, yeah. (laughs) This was their their seventh child. And uh, uh, they're a family. The mother uh, basically cooks meals for postpartum mothers. That's that's the occupation that both of them do. Yeah, so they try to cook these healthy meals for them. And they say all the six children, there's absolutely no complaint. Only with this particular child, they noticed that uh, the child was born. And just within the first few days of life, the uh, eczema patches started. And now they've covered the child literally from head to toe. So when you see these child's images, which I'll try to put out an Instagram link of, uh, you will see that there's scaling, there's redness, there's peeling of the skin. And this child is so uncomfortable. The mother has to put mittens on the child's uh, hands all the time because otherwise he tends to try to scratch as much as he can, which causes even more damage. And then we're risking infections. So uh, literally the abdomen, the back, all of it was covered with everything. And the other thing which was serious about this child was that there was still no neck holding, even at the age of six months. So the child was 
completely collapsing. The parents had to constantly hold the child. The child is, is not a very happy child. The child is a little cranky, starts shouting, screaming, crying. And none of the milestones which were supposed to occur till the six-month age gap had occurred so far. The mother noticed that if she has eggs, seafood or nuts, then his skin tends to flare up because of that. So she was breastfeeding at that point in time. So those were her observations. The child was still completely on uh, milk at this age. So the child wasn't eating anything. Vaccination-wise, the child had to be given BCG at the hospital. So that was done. But after that, the parents decided to kind of, you know, avoid as much as they could or delay it as much as they could. The child's appetite is good, does not still turn himself. Eyes also remain half open in his sleep. And so a very important part of my case with kids becomes the pregnancy history because sometimes that holds the key to, to what the prescription could be because as you can see, you can get observational symptoms from a child at six months. The mother can tell you a little bit, you know, about sleep or what they like or, you know, the preference for which side of the breast or the preference for heat or cold, things like that. But you can't really get a lot of deeper symptoms or especially mind-related symptoms. So the best way to do it is to ask the, the mother, you know, what the situation was when she was pregnant. So I like to get the physical and emotional history. And so in this case, the mother just gave me a very uh, general uh, opinion saying that, you know, it was a very easy pregnancy. Her uh, With her third child, she had had preeclampsia. So she was a little anxious about developing that with this child. And uh, that's it. Other than that, she said it was, uh, it was a pretty uh, easy time for us. And we didn't really... Uh, I mean, there was no real emotion. So I, I like to ask, you know, if there was some sudden death in the family, some sudden news, relationships with the husband, with your in-laws, things like that. But, but nothing really of significance came up. They said we live by ourselves. So there's not really too much involvement from a lot of family. She said work-wise, of course, because I had my younger kids already. Uh, my older kids, sorry, already. I had a lot of work to do with them. So I was constantly working and taking care of the other kids and then, you know, kind of managing myself. So that was tough. But other than that, nothing else as such. Now, the mother has a history of asthma, which you will normally see with the parents that some of them will have an allergic tendency of either uh, a gut allergy or a respiratory allergy or a skin allergy. And so this child, to me, through the entire case taking, appeared like a very calm child. The child was absolutely like I could see that this child can be in so much more distress but to me, the child appeared relatively in a little bit of a Zen mode because I feel like the body lacked energy to even show a response. Because as I said, you know, the milestones weren't done yet. So this child was definitely on the weaker side of things. So I don't know if you've already guessed the remedy, but uh, Serinus? They were just, no, <laughs> no I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. So I, I mean, normally I repertorize my cases. Yeah. So I took, these were the rubrics if they're interest to any of the practitioners. Yeah. The development of children arrested in the mm -hmm. mind chapter. Then he had an unusually large size of the head, which I definitely felt. So I take a lot of observational symptoms as well, because sometimes that's really mm. important as well. So head large size, eyes open during sleep, neck weakness because of the head holding. That's the rubric I found the closest. Uh, eczema in children, in infants. And eczema desquamating, because as I said, there was a lot of desquamation happening, a lot of peeling, a lot of white uh, flakes you could see all through the skin. Then in generals, I took allergic constitution. I took emaciation, children in, infants in. Food and drinks, eggs aggravate, because the mother specifically stressed on the eggs part of it. 
and I took general's weakness, muscular children in infants. Hmm. And so the remedy that that strikingly came up was calcarea carb. Okay. Because you see that with, you know, the big size children, the development arrested, the egg hmm. allergy, and uh, of course, eczema gets covered a lot. And placid. Uh, yes. So uh, I decided to start uh, the child off on just an LM scale because uh, normally with allergies and with uh, with people who tend to be on the more sensitive side, instead of the C potencies, I like to do the LM potencies. And uh, so I started with just the LM1. I uh, asked the parents to repeat it twice a day. And so what I do is I give the LM scale pills, but I ask them to dilute it within three cups. So they put the medicine in the first cup but then they stir that and then the spoon goes to the second cup and then they stir it again and the spoon goes to the third Mm. cup. So the whole process, the whole concept of the process being that we're just trying to energize that medicine as much as possible with our, uh, with stirring movements. And so from the third cup, the child was given one teaspoonful two times a day. Wow. And along with that, I like to also use bowel nozzles. Oh, me too. Yes. So I put him on Morgan Pure 30. Because Morgan Pure has a lot of effects on eczema with the skin, uh, with uh, infants. And so we did Morgan Pure 30, but that I did only three pills to be given once every week. Mm-hmm. So three pills went every week for that. And the cup medicine was on daily. And I was expecting, okay, you know, I actually, I, so with small children, my heart goes out to them. So I was also like, you know, should I ask someone for help? Should I, you know, just be very sure? Because this child, you know, really needs uh, attention I want the milestones to you know start recovering from now on because he has a really long way to kind of catch up but I was like okay let me just give it a shot you know let me be confident and let me prescribe and hopefully you know this child really turns around and I was so pleasantly surprised that within a month this child improved almost I would say a 50 or a 60 percent wow. and the parents were so happy I was also more I mean, I was expecting a good result because this child had not been exposed to any steroids or any mm. medications because of which I knew he would respond faster and better. But I was so happy to see that a lot of the regions started now reducing with the redness. A lot of the skin started looking back to normal, which in one month, I mean, I've seen those kind of results with homeopathy, but I've never seen that with, you know, my practice where I'm like, okay, within a month, the entire eczema cleared out. The skin got better. Uh, the mother feels that now, even in spite of me eating the foods that were triggering him, it's not getting triggered so much. So he will still show a little bit of a response, but not as bad a response as was earlier. She feels he's definitely itching much better. So the hands don't go all around trying to scratch. He's sleeping much better. And they went and met a couple of neurologists, which I asked her to actually go and see because uh, to figure out, you know, if there was some other underlying cause to the fact that the milestones weren't developing, because assessment at this age is very important you don't Mm. want to miss something because you can treat it that much better and faster so they went and met them and everyone just had the opinion that everything's fine he's just weak he's physically weak and so you need to supplement that with something and eventually he grew it out so again that was a very good uh, news to get and so I decided that since the medicine's working well we're just going to keep stepping up so the last time I gave him uh, calcarea carb zero by two Again, same three cups twice a day and the Morgan Pure once a week. And the child's doing so much better. I've just spoke to the mom two days back also. She's like, the skin is eventually slowly healing itself out. Everything's getting better. Again, I'm going to stress eczema is a difficult one to treat. Mm. So for a lot of homeopaths, you know, 
seeing something like this should not deject you because uh, it should only encourage you because in some cases it does take longer. In a lot of my cases, I would give it at least three to four months to see such good results. But when you give the right remedy and when, you know, the child has that ability to absorb it and, you know, process it, I feel like you can see miracles sometimes, Mm. literal miracles. I so. completely agree. And like you said, that child hadn't had many suppressive medications in the past. Often we see children after they've tried every other, you know, the parents have tried every other modality and there's steroid after steroids been used and all sorts of suppressive medications. And so when you're treating a child like that, it's so much harder to get a good result. And often there will be some aggravations as the body is trying to clear out some of that suppressive medications. Um, so that boggles my mind. And, you know, we have mentioned the allium potency I think maybe once on the podcast, but I think most of our listeners know the uh, C potency. So the the allium or the Q potencies as one drop mother tincture to 49,999 drops of water and alcohol. And what Rukshin is saying is, you know, she would put like, get the clients to put some drops of that into a glass, stir it, take one teaspoon of that, put another glass, stir it, take one teaspoon of that, put in a third glass. And you're taking one teaspoon of that as the last one. So believe me, even as homeopaths, I think as we're doing this, we're like, oh my God, how can this work? (laughs) But then we see the results and it clearly does. So um, it really is mind blowing. Exactly. Mm. So now I only use liquid potencies uh, or these water cup medicines. I never, ever give them the pills directly unless it's a once a week affair. And then, you know, just to save them the trouble, I'll be like, okay, take it directly. But otherwise uh, water medicines work the best. So I would advise everyone to, you know, probably try that on yourself and see how well it works. Sure. Do you usually use the three cup method or do you ever advise somebody just to to put in a glass, stir and then drink? I do. I do. I do that as well. It just depends on the case based on how sensitive I feel a patient is. And Mm. normally with allergies, the sensitivities are a little higher. Mm. Sometimes I also get cases who have gone to previous homeopaths and they've been triggered by the homeopathic remedies. And so they feel like, you know, they want... I'm very, very careful with my children. So I'm always sure to make, you know, to use the most mildest, most diluted form that we possibly can in a wait and watch approach. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'll ask them to just have a teaspoonful. We observe for a few days, see how it goes. And then we decide how frequent we want to start off with the dosage. So, but normally, as I said, either it could be just pills in water or drops in water, or sometimes I do the cup medicine. My dad does five cup method, actually. Mm -hmm. So he does it with all his clients, only five cup, but I decide. I sometimes do one, I sometimes do three, I sometimes do five. It all depends. I know that's part of the beauty of homeopathy. I think some people find that very frustrating that why can't all the homeopaths all use the same, like some sort of system of all using the same. Our very first, um, I think, oh no, sorry. It was with Laurel Chaitan, the movie maker of Just One Drop. Yeah, she said, why can't you homeopaths all just prescribe the same? And I'm like, well, actually, that's the beauty of homeopathy because we get to be responsive to our clients' needs. And, um, you know, it's that art versus art and science, not versus combination of art. And I'll also give you another reason for that. I feel like because it's so individualized and personalized, I feel like people across the globe need different potencies. And I've seen that because I've seen my dad practicing in India and then I would go and sit with him and see his American patients or see the European patients. And I would see that they all actually cannot be given the same potency or the same scale of medicines because their sensitivity is very different. As Indians, I feel like we're not as sensitive as Caucasians are, for example, Mm -hmm. whereby they tend to react a little more and a and literally quicker and sometimes in a little intense manner to homeopathic medicines. And so 
I think for them, LM scale, five cup, 10 cup. I've seen my dad go to 15, 25 cup also. He uh, uses that for some of the really sensitive patients. And mm. uh, and I think that so that's the beauty of it, right? Because you're completely customizing it to your client's needs based on, you know, their ethnicity, their reactivity, their allergic tendency, their constitution. And so I think that's that's kind of lovely. It makes a lot of sense because all our countries are all so different. And like you were saying, of all of you squished up in the train in India, I mean, your immune system is constantly being primed because you're constantly being exposed to something, okay. you know, contrast that with say, a, you know, a Western country where they're using sanitizer and everyone, you know, like there's not as many people. So their immune system is not getting primed quite as much. So it yes. makes, uh, it makes complete sense what you're saying. Exactly. Even your microbiome, right? Your, yeah. your gut, the, the bacteria your gut is exposed to in India. We grew up eating roadside food, outside food, all sorts of mm. nonsense. There's dirty things happening all the time, you know, even with our water, it's very different. You know, Caucasians come to, to India and they get sick when they have their first cup of water over there. Whereas mm. for us, we're so used to it because our body is used to it. So I think everyone has to, that's why we treated differently. You know, you can't possibly have a one size fits all in homeopathy. Absolutely. Um, my husband and I are from South Africa originally, and we always joke that we've got very strong guts. So when we went to Bali, we're like, we're going to drink the, the shower water and the tap water. And we were completely fine. So <laughs> I do think that makes a bit of a difference. Oh, and I guess the other thing is that if there are countries where there's more poverty, often they can't actually afford the expensive pharmaceutical medications anyway. So often they have to kind of rely on their natural immunity in, instead of just going out and buying pharmaceuticals to suppress things which will be, weaken their vital force. Whereas in the West, often, you know, there's more access to these things. So it's easy for a parent just to go to the doctor, get the steroid to it, cream to suppress things rather than kind of exactly. letting it run its natural course. Exactly. And you'd be surprised as to how uh, how intuitive even uh, the lower classes in India, because when you speak to just, you know, your taxi drivers, you know, people who are just chauffeuring you around and things like that, you can now tell that their trust in the medical system is so low because mm. I feel like they've been abused by that for so long that they, they don't they don't want it anymore. They want to rely as much as they can on anything besides that, you know. And their trust in age-old remedies, their trust, trust in, you know, home remedies, like I give to a lot of my clients, you know, mixing herbs and water and making teas or, you know, things like that is just so much more that they would rather do that. And now it's spreading to the Western world as well, because now we want as many herbs as we possibly can, you know. Everyone wants to kind of, you know, make sure that they're uh, that they're as less reliant on the toxic chemicals and they're as much more reliant on things that are going to make them feel better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, homeopathy is the ultimate in sustainable medicine. The impact it has on the planet is virtually zero. So if you want to talk about sustainability and gentle, effective cures, homeopathy really is it, which is pretty exactly. pretty incredible. Are there any other cases that you wanted to share, Rikshin, before we finish up? Sure. We have a respiratory allergy one. We can yeah. probably do that. Okay. okay. That'd be wonderful. Okay. So uh, this was a 36-year-old female who uh, came to me about two months ago. And she came to me with the complaints of allergic rhinitis. And she said, this is something I have had since I can't even remember how old I was. So I have always had runny noses, a lot of redness on the skin, a lot of allergies, which I used to keep falling sick with. So because of that, a lot of antihistamines have gone into the system. And she's like, miraculously, when I was a teenager, everything disappeared. I suddenly didn't have a single allergic symptom in my body. So she doesn't know what caused it, but she was very happy at that time. And she moved along, got married, 
uh, shifted from uh, India, came to live in Singapore. And now suddenly, since the last two years, when she got pregnant with her second child, she started feeling like the allergies are all coming back. So she started again getting the runny nose, blocked nose, uh, wakes up in the middle of the night sneezing, wakes up in the middle of the night with a runny nose, a lot of itching all over the skin with the dryness. She feels like there are some patches which come with the eczema and then there's a lot of itching and then suddenly they disappear and then they'll appear at another region. And she took, of course, a lot of regular medical treatments for that to start off with. So a lot of steroid creams, a lot of uh, steroid nasal drops. She also had a lot of eye allergies. So redness in the eyes, itching in the eyes. So she was the complete picture. I mean, she was literally showing allergies at every single front that there could be. And I feel like that had to do a lot with the fact that they were there since childhood. They were treated absolutely in a wrong manner. Mm. And so the body does not forget. The body will try to express itself at every opportunity it gets. Because still, you don't resolve that, that inner default that the body is trying to show you through symptoms. The body is going to express it in this way and that way and this way and that way till you do not learn to treat it the correct way. So she eventually was frustrated with everything. Her eyes were something that were actually the main concern when we met. And uh, she just visited an ophthalm would put her on three different kind of eye drops because there was something to make the eyes feel a little wet. There was something to be like an antihistamine eye drops and she was on a steroid eye drop. And uh, she was frustrated. She was like, please help me. I definitely need to get rid of all of this. And uh, so we met. And when we met, her complaints were mostly the, the eye-related symptoms. So she says it normally starts off with the eye. Once the eye kind of settles, then it starts off with sneezing. Sometimes she noticed a yellow discharge coming out from the eyes. Allergies would get worse in the nights. So between 1 to 2 a.m. was an aggravation and between 4 to 5 a.m. was another aggravation. And she's like, generally, 9 out of 10 nights, she's awake in the night, down with these allergies and absolutely frustrated. She also felt like the dry and cold weather made it worse, which we don't actually have in Singapore. But she noticed that every time she would be exposed to that, like a cold, AC, mall environment, she would tend to become worse. Along with that, she had a history of postpartum depression with her first child. She's also anemic. And so her, uh, and she tends to get anemic quickly. So even though her hemoglobin is fine right now, her doctor has advised her to be on iron supplements every month for a few days. She feels like she has a very low metabolism. So she tends to put on weight pretty quickly in spite of not eating too much. She also has a history of hemorrhoids, which she had three months ago. She uses the gel to apply around and she feels like as of now, it's not giving her a concern, but she definitely has a tendency for that. So then I got into asking her about her generals. So she says she's a foodie. She loves sugar and she loves deserts, especially when she's tired. So anytime that she's exhausted, that would be her go-to food. That would be her stress eating, which would be sugar and desserts. She loves chili. She loves spices. She loves fish. She loves cheese. She loves pulses. She has an aversion towards sour taste. She feels like gluten aggravates her should she tries to eat as little as possible. She tends to be constipated. Sweating is more on the region of the chest. She says she feels like it takes her time to fall asleep. And that's because she has two small children in the house. And so because of that, it's a lot of broken sleep. Then she talks about her menses, where she says there's two days of a heavy flow, two days of a mild flow, but a regular cycle. Her pregnancy with her two kids has been through an epidural, but she's had normal delivery with both of them. So no cesarean. 
She's had a past history of jaundice when she was young, typhoid, and two episodes of colitis due to having street food. And she has a family history of allergies and a family history of eczema. So then I start asking her about her, uh, her personality, her life situation at this point of time. And so she discusses about her past life, which is uh, back in India, when uh, she used to actually be a model. She was a very famous uh, model at that time. She did it for some time. She got some success. She was happy about it. But then she found her life partner and decided to move away. Her main issues emotionally were with her mother. And her mother is someone who she feels has been a key factor in, you know, causing her a lot of disturbances. So she said her mother was someone who was very close to her initially. But her mother wanted to, you know, treat her this patient as if she was her life partner. So she wanted everything to do with her. She wanted to, uh, you know, be with her when she went out with her friends. She wanted to be out when she went out with her partner. And she found that a little too intrusive into her life at that point of time. So when her mother, when she moved to Singapore and she told her mother about it, her mother said that she also wished to move with them and settle down out here with them. Which, of course, she was also not too happy about, nor was her partner too happy about, because they wanted to start their own life, have their kids, build their own, you know, life by themselves and not really have the intrusion of someone else at that time. And so because she told her mother that, her mother decided to cut off all relations with her. So she completely stopped talking to her. She decided to be very immature about it. She would not lift up the patient's calls. She still does not after so many years. So this happened in 2016. And we're in 22. So she still hasn't, you know, really uh, responded properly to her daughter. And so that was something which her mother felt very hurt about. She tried to convey through her sister, you know, to her mother about why she made that decision and how it was important for her to cut off and, you know, not feel like her mother was part of her married life as well. But I think her mother at that point was not ready to deal with it. Because of all of this, the patient developed a lot of fear of abandonment. So she felt like she had absolutely no support from her family, her parents. And that made her a little bit of an anxious person. She started developing a lot of panic situations because of that. Because she felt like she, she said no to her mother. But what if life with her partner doesn't work out? Then what is her backup? Then what will she fall back on? And so that has always been a little insecurity for her throughout her life. Her mother-in-law, on the other hand, is a demanding and a very controlling person. She has always tried to interfere into the, her life as much as possible. But because she's back in India, it was just more on the phone and more when they go back to India. And she doesn't really have to deal with it here on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, because of her mother issues, she feels like the emotions she's expressing are a lot of grief, a lot of anger. She had a lot of hurt and a lot of crying. Her sister became her support system at that point of time. Her husband, she says, has always been a rock for her, always felt a lot of acceptance from her husband. And in 2015, they got into Buddhism practice, which has also helped stabilize her a lot. Recently, her past experience with her mother has prompted her to get into psychiatric help and, you know, be a counselor herself. So she's now learning how to be a counselor and she plans to pursue that now as her next profession after her kids are a little more stable and she really wants to put into practice and teach a lot of people the way she dealt with the situation herself. Mm -hmm. Nature-wise, she's a very strong-headed personality. She feels she's very straightforward and I noticed that in my practice too, the way she talks, you know, she's a very loud voice, very, you know, to the point. 
She tends to, you know, joke about certain things in a particular way. She feels she's not a very critical person. She tries to focus more on the positive aspects of things. Very ambitious, which I found a little surprising because she had left work a while back and she's now only studying to become a counselor herself. Though she feels like, you know, she's very passionate about it. But at present, I think in the last three or four years, she's not really done anything about it. She loves fitness. She loves gymming. She loves exercising. Because of her history of a model, you can imagine she has a very tall physique. Mm. She loves cooking, she says. She's a very creative person. And she doesn't like anyone trying to control her, nor does she like anyone trying to change her. So these were all the symptoms I got from her. Again, with her being a, a very famous personality, you know, there was a there was a certain pressure I felt that, you know, I, <laughs> I can prove, you know, <laughs> that homeopathy is going to give you some results and it has to work. She had never tried homeopathy before in the past, always only been to allopathic doctors. But she remembers as a child taking homeopathy back mm-hmm. in India. And so she wanted to kind of revisit that uh, mm-hmm. modality as well. And uh, she literally gave me no choice you know she was like doctor I need to feel better within the next you know one or two months and and I need this to go away you know it's really kind of been there for so long now that I can't imagine you know living with this anymore any longer and so I repertorized her case again the way I do my cases is I take a combination of everything physicals generals and the personality and the emotional state and so I took about 15 rubrics for her based on her mental state, a few generals. In the physicals, there was really nothing particular to take other than the fact that the allergies were more uh, intense in the night. And uh, I took a few eye symptoms and I put her on the remedy sepia. So I gave her sepia 30. I gave her the C scale, the 30 C. Mm-hmm. And I did the one cup for her that time, three times a day. Mm-hmm. And what I did for her is I gave her an SOS to take in the nights when she has these allergies. And uh, so the remedy I gave her for that was arsenic album because it covered a lot of her acute symptoms at that time. And I told her, if you really feel them too intense, instead of taking the antihistamine, you take this SOS remedy. And on a daily basis, I want you to take the CPR 30. And that's it. And she was very anxious. She's almost messaged me, I think, every three or four days since then. And uh, she was like, you know, should I eat this? Should I do that? And, you know, she was very, very concerned about, you know, making a lot of changes to her health. Of course, I advised her a lot of dietary and lifestyle changes as well, because I feel like it all has to go hand in glove. Mm. You can't really do one without the other and expect your body to repair itself. So I gave her advice on, you know, trying a low histamine diet on, uh, on ways to maybe sleep better. Mentally, she was in a good place when she met me because she had dealt with all the emotions with her mother. Mm. So that was uh, that was a positive thing. And uh, we met after a month. Within a month, she told me her itching has almost completely gone. So there's no more dry skin. There's no more itching. There's no more eczema patches she's being able to see. She only felt like whenever she tends to go for the hair removal strips, that's when mm. things start becoming bad. And so we're trying to now figure out alternatives to that. She feels like the runny nose when she used to wake up in the night has completely gone. The eyes are much, much better. Mm -hmm. So with the eyes, the remedy that I had told her to do was, uh, you know, Boyron does these eye drops. So uh, they're a mixture of a few remedies and they tend to help with itchy, allergic eyes. Mm -hmm. So I'd asked her to pick up that from iHerb and she ordered that. And I told her to use that as a substitute now and to avoid the steroid and the antihistamine eye drops. So uh, she's like, the eyes have completely felt better. The medicines were normal. She felt like PMS used to happen. She used to be very angry, very irritable at her family members. 
She's like, this month, it was amazing. I did not even, you know, anticipate that my jobs were, my menses were coming because uh, I didn't feel any of those emotions. And she's like, constipation is also much better. Everything was going good. And so I continued CPR for her. She was on probiotics, uh, but we're changing on the probiotics. In this month, we changed that. And she said that she was feeling a little bit of throat irritation for which I put her on echinacea goggles. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and then the next follow-up again, everything was much, much better. So everything with her also stabilized very quickly with just a constitutional remedy. Amazing. And so that's the beauty of it, you know. And now I've realized it works, works well as an amalgamation, you know, of both. You use your acutes or you use, you know, these intercurrent remedies. So with allergies, especially as, as we're talking about that, I use a lot of uh, intercurrents like histamine. We have a remedy in you know, mm. for histamine. I love that We do one. dust mites. Yeah. or uh, house dust or mold I've recently procured, yeah so mm-hmm. I've recently procured a lot of mold remedies like house mold aspergillus just general mold and things like that where you feel like if those could be triggering factors or you know like a maintaining cause for the condition not getting better I frequently like to use them you know at least once a week or once every two weeks you know just as a little booster in the middle to help you know their body recover a little faster so mm-hmm. so yeah that's I love that too. And I love that you call it an SOS remedy because a lot of these people, they are so in the habit of reaching for their antihistamines or reaching for the steroids. It's that habit. So with homeopathy, because we sometimes just give them one remedy and that's it or one a day, it's a little bit too weird for them almost. So it's too much of a jump. So if you have that SOS remedy, they at least can kind of replace that as a crutch initially to just help them get through that until their vital force is a little bit stronger and they become a bit more confident with the medicine. So I I love that you call it an SOS remedy. I'm going to steal that from you. Yeah, Yeah, and I use them all the time because, you know, Hmm. even for example, when you have cases of migraines, it's not like the migraines stop on day one, you know, after the homeopathy. They still do come. Maybe the intensity is better and the frequency is more, you know, spread out, but they still do come. And so I would rather you take my SOS than you go for the Panadol, than you go for any of, you know, the the neurological remedies so so yeah it's always important to you know give them the supply so then they know and they're confident with what they're doing with you and so you know the dependence on everything else becomes that much lesser and with kids especially you need to do that otherwise parents are so anxious mothers are so anxious that they will run to the doctor they run to emergencies for the smallest of things until you Mm -hmm. don't give them that confidence they will still you know be doubting it at the back of their mind and so that's the that's a very uh, good tip to actually when you're working with kids, you know, to provide moms with as much information and, you know, things as possible. Mm-hmm. The biggest compliment slash driving force slash fire under me that anybody can ever tell me is that when a mom says to me, you have given me so much, you've given me my confidence back. Oh, actually, if they say you have empowered me to treat my family myself, I don't feel I have to run to the doctor for everything. That is the best thing anyone can ever tell me is if you can empower a mother to be able to care for her family the way that we have for eons, you know, since human race began, as we have always looked after our family. And I feel like that's been taken out of our, actually we've given that power up, let's be honest. And when a mom can say, I've got that power back. Oh man, that's amazing. (laughs) No, it's beautiful. It's Mm -hmm. beautiful. And a family that once does homeopathy, I feel, And when you can just do that little bit for that family, they'll always grow up, you know, to kind of to entrust it and to, you know, kind of have it as a part of their day to day through their life. And 
Absolutely. So Rukshin, how can our listeners get hold of you? So uh, I think the best way to do it is my email. So I'll be sharing my details with you. I'm mm-hmm. also on Instagram as uh, the title is at the immunity doctor. So they can follow me there. I'm not the best with posting, but I try to be as regular as I can mm-hmm. with given all the all the other work that's uh, around it. You're going to have to post those eczema pictures that you were talking about earlier. Yes, I will (laughs) will do that in a day or two for sure. And I'll send you the link for that. Thank you so much, Rukshin. And I'll put your details in the show notes. And I really appreciate your time. And thank you for your incredible passion. It's just been so wonderful chatting with you today. No, it's my pleasure. I'm so happy. And I'm interviewing your dad on the 1st of April. So if you have any insider information, let me know if you want me to, like anything I can tease him with, let me know. Okay, I'll do that. I saw he, he booked for the 1st of April. I was like, thank you very much. I hope it's not an April Fool's joke because I really do want to yeah. talk with you. He's not the April Fool guys. <laughs> thank you so much, Rick. Have an amazing day. You too. Bye. Take care. Goodbye.